Okay, wonderful. We are live on Facebook. Uh, <laughs> it's really great to be here. This is Yiddish Poetry as Holocaust Theology with Mr. Daniel Kraft. So as a bit of housekeeping, first of all, those joining us here on Zoom, I will be sending you an invitation to become a panelist that does not obligate you to do anything at all. It just enables you, if you so choose, to turn your camera on. We love seeing your happy face reacting to the learning that we're doing. Um, and you'll also be able to mute and unmute yourself when we have uh, breaks for questions, answers, hopefully, <laughs> or uh, re rebuttal questions, perhaps, um, <laughs> and comments. And also, if you would like to volunteer to read particular texts that we're going over, um, you'll be able to do that. Uh, but of course, if you prefer to interact with us using the chat, that is available. You can just type questions, comments in there. I know a lot of folks like to use it as a sort of note taking while we're waiting for those question and answer periods. If you're joining us on Facebook, good evening. You can put your questions and comments directly below this video in the comment section. I will keep track and bring them over here, make sure that we do our best to address them. Um, and as I said, this is Yiddish Poetry as Holocaust Theology with Mr. Daniel Kraft. The philosopher Theodore Adorno famously or infamously said that poetry after Auschwitz is barbaric. But for a generation of Jewish writers, poetry after and about Auschwitz was an essential way of grappling with and grieving for the Holocaust. Together we'll look at Yiddish poets who turn to verse to craft theological responses to the Shoah. We'll consider the ways that poetry can be a medium for theology, in addition to the specifics of these poets' work, asking questions like, how does the Shoah change their relationship to God and to Torah, and how can poetry express the inexpressible? So um, again, <laughs> Yiddish language skills are not required for this course. Mr. Kraft took care of all that for us, thankfully. <laughs> um, and Mr. Daniel Kraft is a writer, translator, and educator living in Virginia. He holds a master's from Harvard Divinity School, where he was a Harry Austrian Wolfson Fellow in Jewish Studies and a resident of the Harvard Center for Study of World Religions. He's taught in many venues in North America and Poland. Um, and his writing, poetry, essays, and his translations uh, are available in a number of different publications and on his Substack. Uh, so without further ado, Mr. Kraft, please. Awesome. Thank you so much for that introduction, Noah. And thank you so much for all of your work making this possible. I'm really grateful to be a part of Drisha's incredible programming. And thanks everybody for tuning in tonight. It's really nice to see many um, familiar names and faces here and many unfamiliar, but hopefully soon familiar names and faces here. Um, can everybody hear me okay before we really dive in? Great. So I'm gonna attempt the screen share, which always feels to me a little bit risky, like something's gonna go wrong, but looks like we're good to go. Um, can everybody see this? Great. Awesome. So um, our topic tonight is Yiddish poetry as Holocaust theology. We're going to be exploring the questions that you see here. In what ways is Yiddish poetry a medium for Holocaust theology? 
And how do Yiddish writers use poetry as a way of responding theologically to the Holocaust? So we'll be focusing on four European-born American Yiddish poets, uh, Aaron Zeitlin, Kadya Molodowski, Jacob Gladstein, Yankov Gladstein, um, and Malka Chefetz Tusma. Um, so these are four wonderful poets. Um, they're far from the only poets to write theological Holocaust poetry, but um, for both personal reasons, they're poets that I love, and arbitrary reasons, um, because we have a finite amount of time, these are the writers we'll be focusing on. Um, so my goal tonight is not so much to present an acad academic argument or to explore theories of poetics or of Holocaust theology. Uh, instead, really, I wanna share some poems that I love, uh, along with some thoughts about the ways that they participate in and contribute to theological conversations about the Holocaust. My hope is also to be able to foster conversation with all of you. Uh, we all know by now that that can be difficult in the Zoom format. Um, so what I'm thinking we'll do is after each poet, I'll open up, we'll kind of take a pause for my talking and we'll open up for questions and comments. So if you have a thought, just hold it until um, I say explicitly that we're opening up to conversation, we'll have several opportunities. Um, and yeah, I think this is gonna be great. Thank you all for tuning in. So before we dive into the poems, I wanna offer a couple different uh, overarching frameworks for this. So some bigger picture frameworks as you hear here. First is what I'm calling my polemical soapbox. Um, so what I wanna argue is that from a Jewish perspective, there's actually not a clear distinction between theology and poetry. We don't have the time, it's beyond the scope of the talk tonight to give a full kind of account of that. Um, yeah, and let's see, I'm trying to figure out how to adjust this screen for folks. Um, thanks for reaching out. Can everybody see okay, or is it hard to see some of the writings there? Okay, I'm seeing some, some thumbs up. Okay, great. Um, so yeah, so from a Jewish perspective, what I wanna suggest is that there's not a clear distinction between theology and poetry. And in fact, what I wanna suggest and what I think is gonna be the basis for our topic tonight is that from the perspective of Judaism, poetry is essentially theological and theology is essentially poetic. And there are a lot of reasons that I think that. I think we find that um, in the Torah itself, in Parshat Vayelech, in the book of Deuteronomy, um, God says to Moses, uh, write this shira, the Hebrew word for poem. And while in the plain meaning of the text, it refers to a specific poetic text that God then says, uh, Maimonides, Rambam, later tells us that this shira, this poem, refers to the entirety of the Torah. So already from the Torah itself, we have an idea that Torah is poetry. And uh, I think this appears in a lot of different places throughout our um, tradition. Midrash, which is of course one of the central classical Jewish theological forms is a poetic form. The Talmud is poetic. Uh, Drisha is offering class right now on the poetics of Mishnah. So I wanna suggest, and I, I am happy to talk about this more later if there's interest, 
that um, a clear distinction between theology and poetry is actually foreign to Judaism. So we see this in an interesting kind of way, this distinction reflected, it's a typo there, um, David Ruskies and Anita Diamant in their Guide to Holocaust Literature. They describe Yankov Bachstein, one of the poets we'll be looking at tonight. Um, they say with his book, Strahlendike Yidin, Radiant Jews, his first post-war collection of poems, Glatstein became a theologian, not merely a poet of the Holocaust. And I, I bring that up as a sort of um, way of illustrating the framework that I don't want to have tonight. I think there's a lot of kind of funky, odd things about this statement, not least of which is this word merely, which establishes, to my mind, a hierarchy playing, placing theology above poetry. Um, but I would argue that there's, first of all, there's no such thing as merely a poet of the Holocaust. But second of all, to be a poet of the Holocaust is already, by definition, necessarily to be a theologian. Um, so that's the first kind of overarching framework that I want to suggest, that all Holocaust poetry and all Jewish poetry in general is theological. The second framework that I want to suggest is that literature, they say here, is where theology becomes concrete. So I'm fascinated by this statement here from Gershom Sholem. Now, this is from a, a speech he gave in 1930 in Jerusalem at a memorial event for the Jewish philosopher and theologian Franz Rosenzweig. Uh, Sholem was one of the towering scholars of um, the Jewish 20th century. Um, so he said in this speech, theology is not a science of the essence of the divinity beyond creation, but consists rather of the eternal questions of love and will, wisdom and ability, judgment and mercy, justice and death, creation and redemption. Theology has concrete questions. In time, this theology took on an alien cast, in our times astoundingly abstract and anemic, as if abandoned by its subjects, which went off in search of another field. Is it at all surprising that with theology's status at its low point, even problems no one could doubt belong to it, no one could doubt belong to it, have fled and have ensconced themselves in art and literature? So there's a lot we could say about this little passage as well. Um, but one of the things that I love about these poems is that they take the themes and questions and concerns of thought theology and they remove them from abstraction. They ground them in the experiences of our lives. And that's what I see Sholem pointing to here as well. Theology can be abstract, it can be theoretical, but in art, the concerns of theology find a rootedness in actual human experiences and desires and questions and yearnings. And then the third uh, little framework I wanna offer is this idea here that uh, poetry creates a space for contradiction. So John Keats, one of the greatest English poets of all time, in, a, um, in an 1817 letter to his brothers, he described what he taught calls neg negative capability. The negative capability, that is, when man is capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Don't you love that phrase, any irritable reaching after fact and reason? So what Keats is describing there is the power of poetry to create a space where we can be uncertain, where we can have our doubts and not try to force them into a resolution. 
Uh, it's also Keats's birthday today, by the way. So happy birthday, Keats. Um, and then of course, in our American poetic tradition, we have Walt Whitman in his song of myself. He writes, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. It's one of the great moments, I think, in the history of American poetry. The theology and philosophy and similar pursuits are often concerned with reason and consistency. But the lived experience of religious faith is not actually that rational or that consistent, especially in the modern world and in the aftermath of trauma, what it means to live a theological life. Um, in other words, what it means not to do theology, but to live the questions of religion, it includes contradiction, includes ambivalence, faith and doubt alongside each other, for example. I think that, as these quotes show us, poetry's negative capability, in Keats's words, its ability to contain contradictions without forcing them into, uh, into resolutions, makes poetry uniquely able to express not just the ideas of theology, but the actual lived questions and concerns and experiences of modern, especially post-Holocaust religion. So with that in mind, let's dive into some poems. So we're gonna start with Aaron Zeitlin. You can see him pictured here. Aaron Zeitlin was born in 1898 in what's now Belarus. His father, Hillel Zeitlin, might be familiar to some folks here. Scrolling down because I love this picture of Hillel Zeitlin. Um, so Hillel Zeitlin was uh, a very influential mystic. He was a writer, a poet, a journalist. Um, he's having a resurgence in some mystically um, inclined Jewish communities today. And here you see a later photograph of uh, father and son together along with someone else. I tried to look up who this central figure here is, Svi Weinberg, and I have no clue, couldn't find anything about him. So if anybody knows, please let me know. Um, so Aaron Zeitlin in a lot of ways followed in his father's footsteps. He started writing professionally as a teenager. Through the course of his career, he wrote poetry, fiction, drama, essays. In his twenties, he settled in Warsaw along with most of his family. Um, he was married, had a kid, and then in 1939, he went to New York for what was supposed to be a relatively temporary visit to work with Maurice Schwartz, who was then director of the Yiddish, um, the Yiddish Art Theater in Manhattan on the production of one of his plays. Um, so that was the summer of 1939. Of course, if you know anything about European history, the start of September 1939, um, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. So what was supposed to become a temporary, be a temporary trip became permanent. Uh, Zeitlin was unable to return to his family. He corresponded with them by letter for a while. And then during the war years, um, the letter stopped. And he had to live with the anguish of the uncertainty of what was happening to his family, along with the anguish of not being there with them in such a time. By the end of the war, he was his family's only surviving member. And the guilt and the trauma of this loss, the loss not just of all of his family, including his, his uh, young child, um, but also the loss of his civilization became one of the central themes of his writing. He died in 1973. Um, one of the central themes along with the Jewish mysticism that he inherited from his father. 
So I want to start uh, by following the thread from the Jewish mystical tradition of his father and uh, seeing how it, it comes into Zeitlin's poetry. So in June of 1939, we find Hillel Zeitlin, his father's last Hebrew publication. It was an essay which takes up a theme, much older theme from Jewish mysticism. Um, and in this Hebrew essay, he wrote, is it not in our power if we truly desire it to give true expression to the words of the psalmist and I am prayer, I myself, I with my whole being, with the entire spirit and soul within me, with all of my 248 organs and 365 sinews. Sorry, my uh, little screen share emblem here is blocking the rest of this. Um, okay. <laughs> with my, uh, all of my 248 organs, and 365 sinews, spiritual and physical. Behold, I am entirely prayer. I am entirely longing, thirst, and craving for God's kindness. So it's a beautiful kind of classical Jewish mystical idea. He's calling on his readers to become the prayer, not to have prayer be something distinct from them. Many years later, Aaron Zeitlin takes up this exact theme and this exact language. Um, I will read this poem in Yiddish and then in English, but for the future poems, I'm going to open it up to anyone who wants to read in either language. Um, so first in Yiddish, Ani Tfila. Du herst mein Tfila, du zest sie, wenn du kuckst im Bloys an, mein Guf, dem Stick reuschech ve afela. Was is mein Tfila und wer? Ich, dein zerbrochene Kli. Anit fila, ich gufa, gor mein hoit und gebein, ich allein, ich allein bin dit fila, mein hand und mein fuß, mein oig und mein euer, dos alts is it fila, mein gott, the fila von treuer. So hopefully you were able, even if you didn't understand the Yiddish, to pick up on some of the music and the rhyme of this poem. It's really a masterful short poem. In English, you hear my prayer, you see it, when you only look at my body, this scrap of dust and darkness. What is my prayer and who? I, your shattered vessel. I am the prayer. I am. My flesh and bones, all of me. I myself. I myself am the prayer. My hand and my foot, my eye and my ear. It's all a prayer, my God, a prayer of sadness. I love this poem. I find it exceptionally powerful. I mean, I could say that about every poem we're going to be talking about tonight. So I'll try to try to hold back. Um, but there's a lot we could say about it. So his father requested of his readers to become their prayer. And here we see Aaron Zeitlin fulfilling his father's request. I am a prayer. But now, when Hillel Zeitlin talked about it, it was, it was a, a prayer of yearning for God's kindness. Here, it's a prayer of sorrow of sadness and whatever wholeness his father thought a person could have in being a prayer is gone. He's a shattered person, a shattered vessel. So I wanted to start with this poem because I think it's a powerful example of the ways that post-Holocaust poetry takes up pre-war theological ideas in a continuous thread. Zeidlin isn't starting from scratch here theologically. He's continuing a theological conversation that his father had continued 
from his own predecessors. And yet, even as it's continuous, it's marked in Zeitlin's refiguring of it here by a new grief and trauma that wasn't present in his father's presentation of the theology. One question that I have about this poem, it, it's strange to me that he doesn't cite his father here. He says very explicitly after a saying from Rabbi Simchabunam of Peshischa, whom his father was also citing, but it's very clearly a reference to his father's last Hebrew publication. So it's strange to me that he wouldn't be explicit about that. I, I don't really know how to read that, that omission, that absence. Um, but yeah, so let's look um, at a few more of Aaron Seidlin's poems. And I wanna look at them from the theological framework of anti-theodicy, what we'll call anti-theodicy. So theodicy, the classical term for a justification of God, an attempt to vindicate divine goodness and justice in the light of suffering and evil. This is a term that was invented by, um, by the philosopher Leibniz, who maintained that this is the best of all possible worlds. So I wanna cite this scholar, the contemporary scholar, Zachary Braderman. So he talks about this idea of anti-theodicy. Anti-theodicy, he writes, mirrors theodicy in reverse, but should not be confused with atheism. Anti-theodic statements neither justify, explain, ascribe, positive meaning, account for, resolve, understand, accept, or theologically rectify the presence of evil in human affairs. Rather, they express anger, hurt, confusion. They do not try to silence suffering people. So we might assume that theodicy is, um, is the standard classical Orthodox Jewish response to suffering. And certainly there's theodicy everywhere in classical Jewish sources, but there's also an important strain of anti-theodicy in classical Jewish sources. So if we look, for example, we see in the Talmud, Elisha ben Abuya says, there is no justice and there is no judge. He says this in response to the death of a child. Now that's maybe not the best example because Elisha ben Abuya is the sort of archetypal heretic of the Talmudic period, but we don't need to turn to heretics to see this idea stated. So for example, I'm interested in this statement from Breshit Rabbah, which is one of the classical Midrash collections, a commentary on the book of Genesis, comparing, um, it's a discussion of Cain and Abel and their struggle. And it says, it is difficult to say this thing and the mouth cannot utter it plainly. Think of two athletes wrestling before the king. Had the king wished, he could have separated them but the king did not so desire. And one athlete overcame the other and killed him. The killed athlete cried out before he died, let my cause be pleaded before the king. So it's a strange sort of parable, but I'm inclined to see this as another, as a classical example of, of uh, anti-theodicy, right? The, the victim here, in this case, maps onto Abel, says very explicitly, let my cause be pleaded before the king. God, king, God, why did you not intercede here? You could have and you didn't. There's no easy answer that the classical rabbis are offering us. There's no theodicy. Uh, and of course, you know, maybe the, the quintessential example of anti-theodicy is most of the book of Job, where Job insists that God is treating him unjustly and that God's justice cannot be vindicated in what is done to Job. Um, 
So classical theodicy, I think, appears very little in Yiddish Holocaust poetry. But anti-theodicy is very, very common. So we're going to look now at a few poems of Aaron Zeitlin's that I see as expressing an anti-theodicy. I don't want to say too much about them. I don't want to over-theorize or over-analyze. Um, now that we've established this anti-theodicy framework, um, I just kind of want to try to let the poems speak for themselves. And hopefully you'll find them powerful and meaningful as well. So this poem uh, takes up quite explicitly the book of Job, right? Where were you when I laid the earth's foundations? Do we have any um, Yiddish readers in attendance who wanna read the Yiddish of the poem? Don't be shy, this is a friendly space. So <laughs> That's right. you could just raise your hand or unmute and let us know. If not, I think in the interest of time, we'll skip a Yiddish reading for this one. Um, and I'll just share the English. Um, but I think you'll, you'll see why I understand this is an anti-theodicy poem. So where were you? From the tempest, God asked Job, where were you when I created Leviathan? Told choirs of young stars to sing, opened worlds and sealed abysses. You know nothing. You cannot accuse me. And Job lowered his head and said no more. Now God is silent. A Jew accuses him. Where were you? Where were you when the German tossed me in a gas chamber, burned me in his oven, made soap from his body, from my body to wash his cane hands, rendered humanity impure forever, toxified your whole holy creation like a toilet. God is silent. A Jew accuses him. Where were you? It's a remarkable poem for the way it completely inverts the classical ending of Job. And I'll just point out here, if you're not a Yiddish reader, I've translated this here, rendered humanity impure forever. The Yiddish is literally, it's gemacht auf ewig treif. So made humanity treif forever. So you can see why this is a poem that rejects any attempt to justify God's goodness or justice and instead embraces um, quite explicitly a rejection of God's goodness and justice and, and accuses God. Uh, similarly, this short poem, Letters from the Warsaw Ghetto, Brief from Varshaver Ghetto. Does anyone want to read the English of this one? I can do it. Do you want me to do it? Awesome. Thanks, Lenny. And Nathaniel, I saw your hand raised too, okay. so thanks for that. We'll get you in a little bit. Letters from the Warsaw Ghetto. Letters sent from the Warsaw Ghetto, hidden in muffled drawers. At night, when souls depart their bodies, you letters leave my drawers, burning with rage and rise to press your charges against God, to file suit against heaven. Hmm. Thank you, Lenny. Yeah, it's a just a, to me, this is just a devastating poem, in part because we can imagine him literally having in his drawers letters from his murdered family members from the Warsaw Ghetto. And here he fully embraces this anti-theotic stance. The letters themselves, interestingly, are what rise up to accuse God. 
these emblems of their absent writers. Um, one interesting strain of his anti-theodicy that I want to point out, it, it rejects very explicitly one theodicy that sometimes comes up in Holocaust theology. So we see this theodicy here um, by Eliezer, in a statement by Eliezer Berkowitz. This is from his uh, 1973 essay. He writes, only after the establishment of the state of Israel, which he sees as part of a messianic process, does Jewish history make sense? Uh, sorry, uh, does Jewish history make sense? It is part of the cosmic drama of redemption. In it, the massive martyrdom of Israel finds its significance. Nothing of the sorrow and the suffering was in vain for all the time the path was being paved for the Messiah. So this is pretty explicitly a statement of theodicy, right? He's justifying God's ways in the Holocaust by saying, well, it culminated in the state of Israel. I'll put my cards on the table and say personally that I find this line of theodicy um, disagreeable at best. I'm being diplomatic there. And as we'll see, Aaron Zeitlin agrees with me. He doesn't like this either. So uh, I'll just read this next poem in the interest of time. Give me back my world. When I appear before the celestial court, I'll need them to answer the questions which will surge in tidal waves from my heart. I'll need them to tell me whether the Shekhinah thinks that a child flung into an oven is redeemed now that Jews have a state. A state? From our blood, it rose up when the people broke their chains. And how much blood must we still spill? Who knows? But how can the two be compared? Even if we could have a hundred states, who cares? Is this the answer, the reward? What do you want? they will ask, what do I want? I want for what happened not to have happened, for what there was not to have been. I need to get back what I had, give me back a world, a world, give it back to me. It's another poem that I find kind of unspeakably devastating. But you see here, he explicitly rejects this claim of theodicy, this idea that there was a reason that there could be some compensation for the suffering, that God had a plan that made it all make sense. In a kind of savage, brutal language, he shows how odious he finds that idea. Hmm. And then I wanna close with a, a final poem of his, where he turns from this theodicy um, to a different kind of, different approach to things a little bit and finds a way to redeem the possibility of faith. Nathaniel, your hand was up earlier. Do you want to read this one in English for us? Sure, I would love to. Awesome. Good to see you, by the way. Likewise. Faith. Where is faith? If you would find its home, go ask despair. The path winds through its territory. Faith resides in ruins. Faith's tears flow across the bare foundation of a burnt-down building. The tears mirror a dawn whose glow illuminates the firmament above faith and above the ruins. In faith, tears dawn shines while faith sits, wrings her hands. If you do not know despair, you will never find faith. Awesome. Thank you, Nathaniel. 
So I wanna argue that this poem is participating in and extending in the particular post-Holocaust context, a theme that we see in a lot of earlier Hasidic theology. So Menachem Mendel of Kotsk says this quite explicitly, nothing is as whole as a broken heart. And Yitz Greenberg, one of another important contemporary theologian, sort of takes this up in a similar way as well. He writes, after Auschwitz, there is no faith so whole as a faith shattered and refused, refused, not refused, in the ovens. No faith so whole as a faith shattered and refused. Nothing as whole as a broken heart. For Aaron Zeitlin, we see that in this poem. Only through despair can you find faith. And what this suggests also is that someone who's never known despair will actually never know faith. Interestingly, though, I want to point out, he doesn't say that despair is a path to God. God is strangely absent from this poem. I don't quite know what to do with that. But I might have expected God to make an appearance here somewhere, right? Um, yeah, but it's just faith without the presence of God mentioned. So with that, I wanna, wanna open up to questions, conversation, comments. Uh, in the interest of time, I'm gonna stop Aaron Zeitlin here, but I would love to hear any thoughts or reflections that you have about anything we've discussed thus far. Either uh, feel free to type if that's easier for you or to unmute or to request to unmute, mute, whatever, whatever works for you. Yeah, so MK wrote, right, cites Esther here. That's an interesting, I hadn't thought about that, um, that kind of connection. The book of Esther is the only book of the Bible in which God is absent, God isn't mentioned. So there's a hiddenness that comes in there. It would be interesting to think of that um, hiddenness in Esther in terms of the hidden, in conversation with the hiddenness of some of these poems. I see you also wrote in the chat, was uh, was Saul Bellow familiar with Zeitlin? I don't know for sure, but Bellow was fairly, uh, had a pretty good understanding of modern Yiddish literature. So I would imagine that he had at least some familiarity, but I really don't, don't know. Yet doesn't faith presuppose God? What is it faith in? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, yeah, what years were these poems? So the, the question about faith presupposing God, I think is, is true. I think there's an implicit aspect of like, yeah, like you find faith and that means faith in God. But I also think that um, we can think of faith here as a more expansive faith in humanity, faith in the possibility of oneself building a meaningful life after such trauma. I'm not saying that those are the only necessary or possible ways of thinking about it or that God is actually absent here, um, but it does strike me that God isn't mentioned where we might expect God to be. Um, what years were these poems written? It's a great question. I was looking in the collected poems, which he, um, 
for better and for worse, Aaron Zeitlin restructured his uh, collected poems. So it's not entirely chronological and he doesn't give dates for everything. So I can double check and see, but none of them were, were obviously apparent. Um, but interestingly, thinking again about you know, this idea that poetry creates a space for contradiction and that that's necessary for post-Holocaust theological poetry. His collected poems, which runs like a thousand pages, it's an astonishing um, body of work, is called Lieder von Korben und Lieder von Gläuben, Poems of Destruction and Poems of Faith. So that contradiction is built in to um, the name of the, the collected poems themselves. And I think what we find, as in this poem about faith and despair, is that the poems of destruction are the poems of faith. The poems of faith are the poems of destruction. Um, that for Zeitlin, these things become intertwined with each other. Yeah. Gary writes, faith in Hebrew is often translated as emunah. How is this expressed, expressed in Yiddish? Emunah is an affirmation in spite of? Is this what is being expressed in these poems? I think it's a great, great, great question. I would say that I understand the faith in these poems is both at, at once in spite of and because of the suffering that he's experienced. Both um, faith, the suffering is an obstacle for his faith, but it's also an avenue to find it. Um, so in the interest of time, let's continue on our journey here. Uh, I will return to my screen sharing and we're gonna jump now into Kadya Molodovsky, our next, uh, our next poet. So Kadya Molodovsky um, was also born in Europe. She emigrated to the United States as a young woman after living in uh, many different European countries. Uh, she was born in what's now Belarus. Um, we're gonna look at two of her poems. They're both from her 1946 collection called uh, Der Melech David Elaine is Geblieben, which means um, only King David remained. So in 1946, she's responding very immediately to the Holocaust, which was for her a personal tragedy, as it was for all of these writers in different ways, her brother and um, his wife and their baby daughter were all murdered. Um, and just like Zeitlin, she was in New York at the time, anxiously awaiting news uh, from her loved ones. And I wanna think about Kadya Molodovsky in the context of a covenantal relationship to God, which is central to Jewish theology. So Yitz Greenberg, whom we mentioned earlier, important Holocaust theologian. He writes, morally speaking, God must repent of the covenant that is due to Shuva, repentance, for having given God's chosen people a task that was unbearably cruel and dangerous without having provided for their protection. Morally speaking then, God can have no claims on the Jews by dint of the covenant. What then happened to the covenant? I submit that its authority was broken but the Jewish people released from its obligations chose voluntarily to take it on again. This is a radical theological play. In the Holocaust, the covenant broke and we now, who uh, those of us who continue to participate in Jewish religious life, 
we voluntarily maintain that covenant. But in Molodovsky, we find an example of someone refusing to voluntarily maintain that covenant, rejecting it quite explicitly. This is a fascinating poem that we're gonna look at. Uh, again, in the interest of time, I feel sad doing this because we deserve to, to have the Yiddish sounds in our minds for this, but we're just going to um, read the English here. So this is called Merciful God. The Yiddish is, is Hebrew, El Hanun, which comes from the uh, 13 attributes of mercy, which God instructs Moses to recite. But here, uh, as you'll see, Molodovsky kind of inverts God's instructions to Moses. So merciful God, choose another people, elect another. We are tired of death and dying. We have no more prayers. Choose another people, elect another. We have no more blood to be a sacrifice. Our house has become a desert. The earth is insufficient for our graves. No more laments for us, no more dirges in the old holy books. Merciful God, sanctify another country, another mountain. We have strewn all the fields and every stone with ash, with holy ash. With the youthful and with babies, we have paid for every letter of your 10 commandments. Merciful God, raise your fiery brow and see the peoples of the world. Give them the prophecies in the days of awe. Your word is babbled in every language. Teach them the deeds, the ways of temptation. Merciful God, give us simple garments of shepherds with their sheep, blacksmiths at their hammers, laundry washers, skin flayers, and even the more base. And do us one more favor. Merciful God, deprive us of the divine presence of genius. It's a searing poem in which she explicitly says, yes, this, this covenant is not broken. I wish it were. Please break it, God, and our chosenness. I'll point out some interesting things in the Yiddish here. This very last line, nem tzu fum uns dishechina fum geonis. So what, this is a Catherine Hellerstein's translation, by the way. So what Catherine Hellerstein translates is the divine presence of genius. That word divine presence is Shekhinah, which if you're familiar with um, Hebrew mysticism, especially, but not exclusively, is the sort of divine feminine indwelling presence of God. Take the Shekhinah from us. It's just to me a totally searing poem in which she wants to be entirely done with this idea of covenant, with this idea of chosenness. It seems to her in this poem to be exclusively the province of death and suffering and oppression. So against Yitz Greenberg's claim that we voluntarily maintain the covenant, she says, no, we are involuntarily trapped within it. We'll look at one more poem of hers in which I think she continues this theme. This is from the same 1946 collection, a tefillah, a prayer. Does anybody want to read the English for this one? Surely. Awesome. Thank you. I, I arise at dawn and my prayer is poison. I ask that the deluge shall come again, raising the surge of the ocean higher than towers and rooftops. The rescuing ark shall not float. 
Oh, how good it is. How sorry. Oh, how good it will be. Death's cold touch. Perhaps it will put out my limbs sickening pain, the heart's desolation, the disgrace of chewing bread near the ash heap of brothers and sisters. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> oh, how good it will be to touch the clouds in the annihilating flood. Perhaps there I'll sense the ultimate sweetness here in the ash flying forth from bodies of voice and closing the circle of life, I will silence the pain. Thanks, Jamie. It's a brutal poem, isn't it? I mean, it really doesn't pull its punches. I think it's important to note here that these are written, uh, as I said, in, well, actually, I, this book was published in 1946. I think this poem was actually written in 1945. So it was written not reflecting after the fact in hindsight, but when the extent of the genocide was really just becoming clear. And I think that accounts for the rawness of the pain that this poem expresses. Uh, she, Kadja Molodowski is not always this, um, this much of a, a downer, although I think this is, she deserves, you know, she's entitled to be, I think it's an incredible poem. And I, I wanna point out in this last poem we looked at, she rejected the Jewish people's covenant with God. But in Parshat Noah, in the, in the Noah story, God creates a covenant with humanity, right? With the rainbow as its emblem, not to destroy the world again. Here, she wants that covenant undone as well. She wants not just the Jewish people's particularity erased, but actually um, life itself. And Jamie, you went oof when you read that line, but uh, the disgrace of chewing bread near the ash heap of brothers and sisters, that hits me every time as well. And to me, that's the key of the, the poem. I mean, how can one continue living? She's asking in a world um, which is so degraded by, by murder. And her answer, at least in this poem, keeping in mind, of course, that poems are spaces for contradiction, and she doesn't have to be consistent in this. Her answer here is that she can't continue with it. It's not worth it. It's not possible. It's not moral. Um, so let's go ahead and uh, again, in the interest of time, I'm going to stop Kagya Molodowski there. And I would love to hear anybody's thoughts. I know this is a lot and it's kind of rushed. So I'm grateful to you all for um, hanging on with me. But I do see some great notes in the chance chat here, the irony of referring to a merciful God, it's lacerating, isn't it? I mean, the, the irony there. You have the sense that she just, I, I have the sense reading this, that she just wants God to feel how horrible this is. Judith, were you going to say something? Yes. Um, of course, the ultimate contradiction is that she's writing poetry in Yiddish and, re and having totally biblical allusions. She has not let go of her Jewishness, nor has she let go of being a human being. She's a poet. Um, so the ultimate contradiction is that the very references, the form she uses keeps her linked no matter how much she's trying to push away. 
Yeah, that's such a good point, Judith. And I think that goes to the title of this poem as well, which Jamie pointed out, a tefillah, a prayer. It's a kind of anti-prayer prayer, but it's a prayer nonetheless. And that is what is, to me, so haunting about these poems, right? And such a good example of Keats's negative capability. She can have a prayer that rejects the possibility of prayer. She can have... Um, a poem in a Jewish language that refuses what it means to be Jewish. Both of those things can be true at once. Aidan asked a great question here. The poetics and sounds of some of these poems perform theology. That is, how do they help work through questions of faith, suffering, etc.? What is or threatens to be lost in translation? It's a phenomenal question. There's a lot that we could say about it, but I'll just point out one aspect of this, which is the etymology. So um, Yiddish speakers generally had what linguists refer to as a high level of um, component consciousness, which means essentially uh, an understanding of the etymology of their words, what language groups their words come from. So we in English don't generally think about like, oh, did I just use a word with a Latin root or a Germanic root? Um, but Yiddish speakers were very, very aware of this and skillful Yiddish writers use this um, and are very deliberate in where they do and don't um, um, use words that come from Hebrew or Aramaic and that carry therefore um, these Hebrew, these kind of biblical and theological um, associations. So that's something that I think is entirely lost in translation. Um, but if you are, uh, a reader of this uh, in Yiddish, even from the title of this poem, a tefillah, a prayer, that's the Hebrew word for prayer. It's not a Yiddish word. So it's explicitly claiming its place within a classical Jewish um, theological and liturgical lineage, right? If it were a Germanic word for prayer, I think it would read as something very different. The fact that it's the title is the Hebrew word for a prayer um, tells us that even as she is rejecting all of this, she still is claiming a place within it in some important way. I don't know if that exactly gets to your question, Aiden. There's a lot more that that could be said about this. Um, yeah, Isaac, was your did you want to say something? Just okay. wanted to mention that uh, anti-theodicy suggests that uh, not that one is an atheist as we read earlier uh, in, in this presentation, but that uh, it, there's sort of a relationship with God, you're angry with God, uh, you can't let go really, you know, you're still in some kind of relationship, uh, which is very different than if it would be atheism then or simply not caring. There's this uh, sense of uh, the covenant being broken, uh, lovers uh, contract being broken, and uh, there's a lot of anger and rage around it, but uh, not, a, not a total denial of God's existence. Yeah, I think that's, that's well said and very true. These would be very different poems and to me at least less interesting if they just said, this is obviously evidence that God does not exist. The fact that they're maintaining this contradictory stance 
of um, having such rage and grief against God, calling on God to destroy the world, um, even from within this place of such suffering and such rejection of what it means generally to believe in God, makes it all the more um, all the more powerful. Yeah, well, every single one of these poems could and should be, you know, an hour's discussion in itself. So thank you for bearing with me as we sort of rush through these. Um, so I wanna look now, we don't have that much time left. So instead of looking at some of this um, theology, let's just dive right into this poem by Yankif Gladstein. Um, Yankif Gladstein, um, I'll just say briefly, was one of the really greatest Yiddish writers of the 20th century. He uh, emigrated as a young man to New York, worked in sweatshops, went to law school at NYU. But by 1920, he, uh, in his early 20s, he really devoted himself fully to writing. He wrote um, essays, novels, uh, criticism, but he's really considered one of the greatest Yiddish poets. And um, also in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust, he wrote some of the most uh, enduring poems about it. So um, let's go ahead and read in English his poem, My Wander Brother. My Wander Brother. I love my sad God, my wander brother. I like to sit with him on a stone and silence to him all my words. When we sit like this, dumbfounded together, our thoughts merge in one stillness. My weary God lights a cigarette and inhales the first smoke. A star lights up, a fiery sign. His limbs long for sleep. The night lies at our feet like a lamb. My beloved God, how many prayers to him have I profaned? How often have I blasphemed in the nights, warmed my fearful bones at the fire pot of knowledge? And here he sits, my friend, hugging me and shares with me his last mouthful. The God of my unbelief is beautiful. How nice is my feeble God now when he is human and unjust? How graceful is he in his proud downfall when the smallest child revolts against his command? Through sea and land, we too shall ever wander and wander together. I think to my dozing God of myself, at times an alien space will spread in the homiest warmth. And before you grasp its mystery, you feel how your own futility blossoms like moss on a gravestone. Is this the city that I built? Is this the street I confided in every night of my memory? How many summers appeared here in my dream? Here I came to strike roots and grow stems. Here I wanted to plant calm on my own living graveyard of father, mother. I had plenty of death over there. I came here, an heir of death, a refugee. You are talking of yourself, answers the silence of my wander brother. And I think of all of us. How much destruction can a people bear and still believe in rebuilding? Now groveling in the dust, my people is holier than me. One day nations shall come to bow to its pain. But God, 
my brother, why hast thou raised my people and spread their misfortune like stars all over the sky? Pain, blood, pierced hands, pity of emptied veins, a childish fable with silly words, I multiplied it by six million. I gave the fable its moral. My people, my son, my dream will blossom forever crucified on a tree of light. My God sleeps and I watch over him. My tired brother dreams the dream of my people. He dwindles, grows small as a baby, and I rock him into the dream of my people. Sleep, my God, my wander brother, sleep into the dream of my people. It's a wild poem, isn't it? So since we're, since we're running out of time, I, I thought it would be nice to end on this poem, although officially we'll end, but I'm happy to stay and chat and continue talking about this as long as people would like. Um, officially we'll end on this poem though, because I think it captures everything we're talking about here. There are a few moments that I wanna point out to you and then we'll open up for continuing thoughts, questions, conversation. So first of all, uh, I love this line, the God of my unbelief is beautiful. In all of the ways we're talking about here, it's a poem that has its cake and eats it too, if you will, when it comes to belief and atheism. How nice is my feeble God now when he is human and unjust. So at the same time, this is a God, and yet this is a God that's feeble, that after the Holocaust had been reduced to this kind of human state of incapability and misfortune. And yet this is a beloved God. This is a God identified as brother. I also want to point out here a fascinating topic in itself, which is Glatstein's use of uh, the crucifixion imagery. My this, is, uh, this is presumably God talking. My people, my son, my dream will blossom forever crucified on a tree of light. It's a kind of wild image. I don't quite know how to see it exactly, but if you try to visualize it, it's really, it's really arresting. And what I think Gladstein is doing here is trying to reclaim this image of Jesus's suffering and um, take it back from Christianity, if you will. Um, one of the projects of a lot of experimental and modern Jewish writers was reclaiming Christian imagery and imagery of Jesus as a um, distinctly Jewish literary and artistic figure and um, uh, framing Jewish without Christ Jesus, without Christian theology. I think that that is, part of what Gladstein is doing here, as if to say, uh, to kind of rebuke Christianity and say, you think you have a crucifixion in your lineage. We are the true crucifixion. We are the true suffering for the sins of the world. Um, and that is something that, that belongs to us forever after the magnitude of the genocide and the trauma that we've gone, to, gone through. Um, and ultimately, I love the kind of tender intimacy that this poem has with God. Even as this poem rejects God, um, humanizes God in ways that deny God's orthodox sort of power and agency, it's a poem that loves God, that rocks God to sleep. And ultimately, I think 
that is um, one of the best examples that we have of the kinds of consolation and um, contradictory theology that poetry can allow for after the Holocaust. This is a poem I think that allows Glatstein to maintain a relationship with God while um, letting go of the God that he can't believe in. So with that, I'm gonna stop because we're booked from eight to nine o'clock. Um, so thank you all so much for tuning in. I know that was, um, that was a little bit more rushed than I had planned for, so I apologize for that. Um, but I would love to stay in chat if anyone is interested, if that's a possibility, Noah, I don't wanna keep anyone um, too late or anything. Um, but yeah, thanks everybody for, for being here. So if anyone has questions or comments, um, feel free to unmute or raise your hand um, or pop them in the chat. We'll give a, a few moments uh, for folks to go ahead with that. Can, can we have copies of the screen share? Yeah, so I do have a little further reading document that um, will be sent out to everyone who registered. Yeah, thanks, Judith. One thing that um, I kept thinking uh, about going through these poems was the theological idea we have of God having a throne of justice and God having a throne of mercy. And I feel that the first poet used a lot of legal language. And I mean, I won't say he stopped short because I haven't been through all, you know, a thousand pages, but it, he seemed very ready to drag God to Nuremberg and say like, it, you're on trial here. Um, whereas the second poet, it was, you know, much obviously like very, very religious. Um, even the, the first poem had a sense of temple service to me, which when we're talking about the Holocaust, you know, there's that dark double reading to all of the sacrifices. Um, and that to me almost, you know, seemed like uh, speaking to the merciful God um, in some sense, whether ironically or not. Uh, and I think this is um, a, little, a little compliment to you uh, as an instructor putting this together, um, but the order with the last poem in particular, like we have God sitting on the throne of judgment, God sitting on the throne of mercy, God sitting this one out because God's tired, but having that follow a poem that uses imagery from Noah and the flood, that's a story where God has a very deep suffering um, and exhaustion because of, you know, seeing humans doing evil. Uh, you know, the Bible doesn't get into a ton of details about it, but moving from that into evil that we can reference and recognize and look at and see, it's believable that God might be too tired. <laughs> So I thought that was great on your part. Thank you, Noah. Okay, is the chat all thank yous? Or do we have questions here? <laughs> Bonnie, did you want to say something? Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, you know, you concentrated so beautifully on the Yiddish poetry in this country from people who, you know, lost people in the Holocaust or 
um, came here as refugees, I'm thinking before, you know, before 1939, is that correct with these poets? Yes, all of these, uh, none of them um, were in Europe. But I'm wondering if there's also in Israel an Israeli poetic tradition of people who either survived the Holocaust and went to Israel or were in Israel before the Holocaust, if they have the same um, sense of a poetic um, dealing with the, with the Odyssey from Israeli poets. I don't know if you've done any studies in that, so I am not, you know, I don't know if that you know, but I'm just curious that I would imagine that there is a tradition of Israeli poetry that is addressing some of the same imagery, but maybe image, I mean, um, ideas, but maybe it would also be a little different because they're in Israel. I don't know, would be, that would be interesting too. Does living in Israel make a difference? Yeah, I think that's a phenomenal question. And you're right that there is a, a tradition in Israel of this kind of theological Holocaust poetry as well. So people like um, Dan Pagis comes to mind as a, you know, incredible, poet. I think it's different in a few different ways. One is that um, the medium of the language itself creates a difference. In other words, to be writing in Hebrew, um, you know, it's like the medium is the message, right? An art form is content. And to write in Hebrew versus writing in Yiddish is itself a significant difference in response to the Holocaust, um, in part because Hebrew just has a different, more kind of overwhelming set of theological, you know, associations and baggage with its vocabulary. Um, but in part also because, and, and in part because Yiddish also has an overwhelming set of baggage with its vocabulary, because most of the vocabulary of Yiddish comes from German, the language of the oppressors. Um, so yeah, I, I I don't have a, a super well thought out response beyond that, but there is a similar tradition and it's different in, I think, really powerful and worthwhile ways. And to my knowledge, no one has done um, a, full, a fuller study of the ways that um, Israeli poets take this up differently than, um, or Israeli Hebrew poets differently than um, Yiddish poets. And I'll also say that these are all poets who didn't survive the Holocaust. Um, but there's also a wealth of poetry, both written during the Holocaust by people who perished in it and by survivors after the fact. And so it would also be, I think, a really worthwhile study to um, compare the poetry of survivors with the poetry uh, that we've been looking at tonight of people who did not themselves survive but sort of, you know, witnessed it from a distance. So yeah, but this is a great question. Yeah, I, I see I, in the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, um, I find, I found that in listening to these poems, you just get a feeling that no matter where they are and how they relate to God in the present of their writing of the poem, the background that they have, the rich European shtetl type of background that they may have grown up in doesn't leave them no matter what. And it's this, this, this conflict that they have almost between their upbringing and the, the strong connections that they still have to it and the reality of what they see in the world and maybe their change of attitude. 
Yeah, I think that's very astute. All of these poets had, um, if not what we would consider an orthodox upbringing, certainly an upbringing steeped in traditional Jewish texts and modes of being and modes of learning. Um, and I don't think, I think that was just who they were and there was no way for them to let it go. However much as we saw, you know, for example, in Kaja Molodowski's poem, however much they might want to let it go, want to be free from it, I don't think they understood it as a possibility. Right, it almost yeah. it brings into contrast the um, philosophy of the um, Europeans that went to Israel to establish a new Jew. These poets were not establishing new Jews. They were the old Jews with new attitudes, perhaps. Hmm. So yeah. I found this extremely interesting and I thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for your, your comments there. Um, Gary, I see you. You cited Leonard Cohen here. I think that's that's um, spot on, especially with some of the Aaron Zeitlin actually poems that we didn't that I didn't include in this. Who has this very mystical understanding of the reciprocal relationship between um, God and humankind? Um, totally. And I love this comment here about um, after the destruction of the temple, God comforts us. And after the destruction of the Holocaust in Blatstein's poem, um, the poet comforts God. We see throughout these poems a kind of inversion of the classical relationship in Jewish texts between God and humanity. For example, in Job, you know, the Job poem from Aaron Zeitlin, where uh, in Job, God says, where were you? And Job is silent. No, now, now the Jew says, God, where were you? And God is silent. So yeah, it's a great, it's another great reading of that. Okay, well, I'm happy to, um, so Noah will send out, I guess, this, this further reading form, and maybe you can include my email address, and if people have further thoughts or comments or questions, um, please feel free to be in touch. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mr. Kraft, for a wonderful class, and thank you, everyone here, for your participation, for being part of our learning community. I know some of this is pretty tough, uh, not you know easy reading, easy listening, um, but I think very worthwhile for all of us. Uh, we still have another dozen classes at Drisha this week. Um, and uh, in a couple weeks, starting on November 15th, uh, Mr. Kraft will also be leading a Yiddish poetry translation workshop. So if that's something that sounds right for you, feel free to take a look. If it's something for someone else in your life, please pass it along. And there is tuition, but this is Trisha. Um, if you need tuition assistance, email me. Uh, I have our website and my email address uh, in the chat. So you can take advantage of all of our offerings that appeal to you um, and share with other folks who might be enriched by what we have on offer here. So again, thank you so much uh, and please be well, everyone, and hope to see you soon and then with you soon. Good night. All right. Thanks everybody. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you.